Well, good morning. Um, I'm Paul Sorrentino. I'm an elder here, and it's my privilege this morning to fill in for Pastor Bill, who's away on a well-deserved vacation. And uh, as Allegra mentioned, this is a great day to stay inside, to turn over in the bed and go back to sleep. So um, thank you for spending some of your inside time with us today. Uh, for those of you online, thanks for joining us wherever you are inside or out. Uh, some of you know that about six or seven weeks ago, Tim Keller died. Uh, pastor Tim Keller was a very influential pastor and writer in New York City. Um, and one of the people he influenced a lot in recent years was David Brooks, columnist for the New York Times. In a tribute to, to Keller, um, entitled Tim Keller Taught Me About Joy, he quotes Keller is saying something to him which has just really struck me and I've been thinking a lot about over the last few weeks. He said to David Brooks, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Just think that's a, a stunning statement. It, it seems like an oxymoron that these two things shouldn't go together. I'm a, a worse sinner than I imagined, and, and I have a pretty good imagination, so that's really bad. <laughs> but also that I'm loved more than I dare hope. I think about things a lot. I can obsess about things I've done wrong, or things I could have done better, or things I should have done that I failed to do. And this statement gives me a sense of proportionality. Yes, it's important that I recognize when I do wrong, but at the same time, it's vitally important, even more important, for me to be aware of my belovedness, that God loves me more than I could ever dare hope. It changes how I think about my failings and that I don't need to beat myself up about them. It's important to understand these two things, our sinfulness and our belovedness, that occur throughout the scriptures, most famously in Luke 15, where Jesus talks about the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son, uh, what we call the prodigal of the lost son usually. In that parable, the youngest son asks for his inheritance from his still alive father so that he can take off and enjoy his money while he's still young. So he goes off and is, as the Bible says, squandered his wealth and wild living and then destitute, he thinks, well, I'm not worthy to be a son anymore, but maybe my dad would hire me to, to work for him. And so he starts the long trip back, rehearsing his speech that he's going to give to his father when he arrives. And his father, of course, doesn't let him give his speech because the father had been watching and waiting and hoping that his son would return. And he sees him a long ways off and runs to him, kisses him, hugs him, and says, let's throw a party. That's what God wants us to know about how he thinks about us and his commitment to us. So why do I start this sermon in James 1, 19 to 27, talking about this? Well, first I think that the knowledge of being loved by God must have been really important to James. As 
Pastor Bill told us last week James was the half-brother of Jesus and that he didn't even believe Jesus was the Messiah until after Jesus rose from the dead. At one point, as told in Mark chapter 3, he joins with other relatives in trying to convince Jesus, who's ministering in a house, to come out that they thought he was out of his mind, that he should come home and have something to eat, which always takes care of most everything. So I think James must have really appreciated and known that he was forgiven and loved by Jesus. So he writes this in that context. And second, as we go through the book, through this series, I want you to recognize that this is true for us. And James is not writing just a a to-do list, a kind of morality list. He's been transformed by his life in Christ And he's telling us this is what life should look like as we respond to the great love of God. Because our being loved by God, in spite of his knowing much more about us than even we know ourselves, is something that we should rejoice in and respond to with gratefulness. It's how we love God back. It's a lot like, I think, the difference between Cleaning up your room because your parents tell you that you need to clean it up or you're going to be grounded. Or knowing that your favorite aunt, your favorite person in the whole world is coming to stay with you and you want everything to be just right and clean up your room for her. So in today's passage, James calls us to listen, to listen, and to act. They may seem like disconnected statements, but they're really connected. The first listening is to scripture. Four times in the verses that David read, 19 to 27, he references scripture, which he calls the word. In our passage, these references connect to the previous verse, verse 18, that we looked at last week. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So in verse 18, our birth or regeneration as believers comes as a result of the Holy Spirit working through the word of truth. We'll come back to verses 19 to 20, but in verse 21 it says, we are to humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Here, save you means more like rescue you or guide you. I love how Eugene Peterson translates verse 21. So throw all spoiled virtue and cancerous evil in the garbage. In simple humility, let our gardener, God, landscape you with the word, making a salvation garden of your life. It's a beautiful image of how we grow and mature as Christians. It's like a garden that produces fruit and vegetables. I often use a morning prayer by John Stott, and part of that says, Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit especially uses scripture when we humbly accept the word planted in us to transform us. It doesn't happen like turning on a light. It's not instantaneous. It's a process like growing tomatoes. And if you want a good crop, you have to pull out the weeds. You have to get rid of what the Bible calls moral filth and evil and being polluted by the world. 
those things that distract us and draw us away from God and keep us from being the kind of person God desires. And then verse 22 says, don't just listen to the word, do what it says. And verse 25, look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and be blessed in the doing of it. The Bible's not just an interesting piece of literature, though it is that. It's not like reading a book that you might not even talk about with your friends but makes no difference in your life. Studying the Bible is a two-part transaction. You study it and then you do it. We don't usually think of the laws as giving freedom, more like what keeps us from doing what we want to do, especially as a child of the 60s. A few weeks ago, Karen and I were in Japan where they drive on the left side of the road. It's really fortunate that everyone in Japan drives on the left side of the road. It would be quite a messy thing if some people drove on the right. God's laws help us to accomplish things. The perfect law James refers to here was inspired by the God who loves us, who knows us, who made the universe. It tells us what we need to know about God and how we're to live. The one who created us knows what is best for us, even if we don't always agree. As we put it into practice, the perfect law changes us and enriches us in ways we cannot anticipate. We are blessed. In my first year in campus ministry, I was leading a Bible study for um, students who were interested in knowing more about Christianity. And this one student, uh, Alan, was really clearly totally lost. He had no Christian background at all, didn't seem to know at all what was going on in the Bible study. So at the end of the study, I said to Alan, Alan, would you like to get together and just be able to talk about some of these things some more? He said, yes, I would. Well, Alan was a very, an older student, a very serious student, an ROTC student, and he took his studies and his time seriously. So he had everything planned out to the minute. And so we went over his schedule for the next day, and the only possible time seemed to be lunchtime. So I asked if we could meet at lunch, and he said yes. Well, he had 30 minutes for lunch. Um, I went through the line pretty quickly and found a seat. He took about 15 minutes, so we had 15 minutes left. And he sat down, and I started talking, and Alan said, uh, excuse me, in, in our house, we really don't talk over dinner, <laughs> which I, I thought was sort of frustrating. So I said, well, if it's OK, in our house we do. Can I just talk? And he said, OK. So, so, so I did. And, and Alan continued in that study for a few months before he, he did make a decision that he wanted to follow Jesus and prayed to receive Christ. And um, I, I knew that the next day he had a really big exam. And so he'd, he'd be really working hard preparing for that. So I said, how about if we get together after your exam? And he, he said, that would be fine. And um, when I met with him the next day, I was shocked to find out he volunteered. He said, you know, I, I got up extra early this morning to read my Bible. I thought, if, if Jesus is my commander, I need to read the instruction manual. And I thought that was, that was brilliant in such a surprise and out of character for, for Alan, who, who ended up living with us for three years and becoming a wonderful friend. Nothing's been more transformative in my own life than the time I regularly spend in scripture. Sometimes that's with a group of people like this for a sermon, 
or for in a class, or especially in a small group when we can talk about things. Other times it's individual reading. I find that reading the Bible is also a time when the Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible reads me. It points out things I need to remember, things to rejoice in, things that give me hope, areas where I need to change. That's usually especially my attitude. I think of Bible reading a lot like breakfast. I love breakfast. And um, I especially enjoy a great breakfast, like going to Bridgeside Grill for a Southern Benedict. That's really good. A lot of times, though, I have a breakfast and it's kind of forgettable. It's just a regular breakfast. It doesn't mean too much, nothing too exciting. But it gives me nourishment that I need. And I think Bible reading is a lot like that. So we'll be talking a lot about more about the Bible in the months ahead. Um, for now, Allegra referred you to um, the scripture reading, the daily scripture reading in your bulletin, or if you're online, that's um, on our website. The second way we are to listen is to others. Verse 19 says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And then verse 26 adds, those who consider themselves religious, yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. There's so much I'd like to be able to say about this, but this is not really a time for a communication seminar. So just give a, a few thoughts. Listening well means not trying to decide what you're gonna do next, being fully present to the speaker, not thinking about what's on your to-do list and when you're gonna do it, but looking at the person and trying to pay attention and understand what they're saying. A lot of things are going on when we communicate. So it's complicated. Well, what about our speech? I think that, um, I don't know if that playground ditty is still said, I hope it's not, but I know when, when I was growing up, kids would say, usually when they were hurt or something, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Um, which is, we all know very far from the truth that in fact, bones heal, but um, words can really hurt for a very long time, um, maybe all our life. Um, just as the word of God changes us for good, so words can have their opposite effect. So we want our speech to be helpful and not harmful to others. I like what Louise Penny, um, the author, says about her chief inspector, Amon Gamarsh. He, um, and I know I shared this once before, but it's worth repeating. Um, he tells his authors to think, think about this before speaking. Three questions. Is it true? Is it kind? And does it need to be said? I think those three questions are a great filter for what we say. As much as possible, we should avoid responding in anger. A friend of mine looked this over and uh, he said, does this mean we can never be angry? I said, no, James concedes that we will sometimes get angry. But we want to do it in ways that do the minimum damage and limit the hurt we may cause. Our anger seldom results in positive outcomes. It doesn't accomplish what God intends, but it can do a lot of damage to our relationships and to ourselves. I think we all say stupid things sometimes, things we regret, things that maybe even years later we remember and wince. 
And as we listen to someone else, we often don't know what's going on in their lives. We don't know if they've just been hurt. We don't know if they have stress on the job. We don't know if they're ill. We don't know if they're concerned about a family member. So we need to show each other a lot of grace. When we hurt each other after we've calmed down, we need to come back to what we share in common. As imperfect as we are, we are loved by God and forgiven. Pastor Bill gave a wonderful sermon a few weeks ago about um, Matthew 18. And I think we are always in danger of being like that unmerciful servant if we cannot forgive. So make no mistake, these are hard things. And um, I sure don't do them well. You can ask my wife, Karen, or the elders. But we, God delights to help us to improve and to be better and to grow in these. The other area James mentions that we must act on is verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Widows and orphans in New Testament times were especially vulnerable because there, there was no welfare system of any kind. They were totally dependent on others for their support. And the early church made that a priority. Jim Wallace, when he was in seminary along with a friend, read through the Bible trying to look for all of the verses that had anything to do with the poor and marginalized. They highlighted over 2,000 verses that the American Bible Society publishes a Bible called the um, Poverty and Justice Bible that is a reproduction of those highlighted verses. So I'm not going to read those, all those verses, but here, here is one to give you an idea. In Matthew 25, Jesus, speaking of the final judgment, says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. As Christians, we have a, a serious consideration to give to how we care for the, and value the poor and the marginalized. It's one of God's main priorities, and it should be ours as well. Karen and I keep a magnet on our refrigerator with a quote from Brian Stevenson. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. It's an important reminder for us. So in this passage, we've seen that God uses the Bible to change us. And two examples James uses are our speech and how we treat the poor and marginalized. We won't always get it right, but we aim to keep improving. We do it not to check off 
a list of to-do items, but because God loves us more than we ever dared hope, and it's how we respond to his love. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you love us more than we could ever dare hope. As the Apostle Paul prayed, would you help us to understand the height and depth and width and breadth of your love and help us to respond in joy and gratitude in how we love our neighbor.